The following program is being brought to you on the Voice America Variety Channel. For more information about our network and to check our additional show hosts and topics of interest, please visit voiceamericavariety.com. The Voice America Talk Radio Network is the worldwide leader in live Internet talk radio. Visit voiceamerica.com. The views and ideas expressed on the following program are strictly those of the host or guests and do not necessarily reflect the views and ideas held by the Voice America Talk Radio Network, its staff, and management. We all know the damage that fires are capable of. What we don't always understand is the cause, behavior, and what to do in the aftermath of a fire. Today, you'll understand these aspects just a little bit more. Welcome to Speaking of Fire with Mike Schlattman and Donna Ingram. We will give you tips on fire prevention, how to deal with insurance matters, and more. Now, here are your hosts, Donna and Mike. Hello, and welcome to Speaking of Fire. Um, Today, this is your host, Mike Slatman. Uh, I I will not be joined by Donna Ingram today. Uh, She couldn't make it, so you're going to have to put up with me. I'm an expert in fire investigations and have over 45 years' experience in uh, investigating thousands of fires. And also, I am honored to be a past president of the International Association of Arson Investigators. Today, we have for the entire show and happy and honored to have Dan Madrakowski. Dan uh, has been on the show, was on our most popular show so far, the one that uh, How to Keep Yourself from Setting Yourself on Fire. And uh, he's, uh, he's back with us, and we're going to talk about fire myths. People that believe, uh, people believe things about fire that are not uh, the, correct, such as uh, that uh, it can't be investigated, you can't find out why, uh, you, you can't, uh, that it doesn't, it burns itself into the scene and, and people think it burns all the evidence up. We're going to talk about that. Now, Dan has, uh, has got a master's degree, a science degree in fire protection engineering from the University of Maryland, a very prestigious school. He's, he's worked a station nightclub fire, uh, he's a he serves on the NFPA Technical Committee on Fire Investigations. He works for Underwriters Laboratories now. He used to work at NIST uh, and uh, is now a um, NIST is the National Institute of Science and Technology, and is a great teacher. and uh, and And I am happy to to also uh, and honored to be called uh, a friend uh, of Dan. So Dan. Uh, welcome to Speaking of Fire, and I appreciate your calling in because I know that you're not in town and you're at a you're now at a, at a hotel or something, aren't you? Because you're presenting, aren't you, somewhere? Uh, actually, I, I just got home from Kansas City uh, last night, so I um, I have the luxury of being in my own office for a change, but it is oh. a rare event. Oh, okay. Good. I'm glad to hear that. I thought you were calling <laughs> in from a hotel. I appreciate you being here. Now, uh, Dan, you have. Uh, what you tell a little bit uh, to the audience uh, to refresh them about your career? What have you been doing? You've you've been in in fire science and fire investigations for years. Talk, talk talk about you and try to blow your horn a little bit because I didn't do it well enough. Go ahead. No, no well, it's uh, I I've just had the luxury um, to be able to have a career and uh, earn a living by starting fires <laughs> and studying fires. And um, I should I should point out starting fires legally, um, <laughs> and uh, over the years we've uh, had opportunities to uh, look at how furniture burns, um, 
do very basic laboratory kind of work to get the basic understanding of uh, fire flows and how gases move and pressure builds uh, within a fire compartment and uh, basically fire dynamics to get a real firsthand good look at fire dynamics. Uh, the timing of my career was such that uh, I had the good fortune to, uh, as a young young person, um, have the opportunity to work with folks like uh, Dr. Vito Bobrowskis, uh, who is uh, one of the world's leading experts on uh, fire ignition of uh, materials and things of that nature. He's uh, developed um, a measurement tool, the cone calorimeter, and so I was present working at NIST while that was uh, under development and getting way, and it's, uh, it's one of the most widely used uh, fire research tools, I think, uh, in the world uh, for also, measuring heat release rate and smoke mm-hmm. and things like that. Also, he wrote or uh, has uh, compiled all the information into the ignition handbook. Um, and I always tell my expert witness classes, if you want to know at what ignition temperature a gnat uh, combusts, you'll you'll have it in that book. So yeah. uh, the, <laughs> go ahead, go ahead. Sorry. No, absolutely, absolutely. It's a uh, it's a tremendous book, and and one of the uh, chapters, as I recall, uh, has I believe over two thousand references. And that's really the you know part of the great value that you can uh, look up and go deeper and see where he got the information from, and it's it's really an amazing text. Uh, Dr. Quintieri uh, worked at NIST. Um, I worked uh, in his division um, early on, and uh, he's also written several books at different levels for sort of undergraduates on uh, fire behavior and fire dynamics, and then master's level and and uh, higher for postgraduate books to study from. Uh, again, very knowledgeable person and and just great people at uh, at NIST. Um, and we, we got to learn a lot of things, ranging from uh, oil spill yeah. fires, um, uh, gas well fires. Uh, so we did uh, sort of industrial, commercial, as well as uh, residential type of fires. We burnt cars. We burnt all sorts of things, and and that experience. Uh, has really helped me throughout my career to have a good understanding and hopefully be able to share that understanding in a good way, uh, not only with the fire service and with fire investigators, uh, but also the general public. Well, surely. And, and uh, with Dr. Quintieri, he also did a, a great CFITrainer.net uh, um, a module on candle fires and explaining how uh, the gases rise, etc. And I know that you, uh, you've been on CFITrainer.net uh, numerous times, uh, and uh, and we've seen your your uh, your your face there much, uh, and you, and we appreciate you uh, contributing. That's the um, that's the IWI has uh, in con- concert with ATF and and the National uh, U.S. Fire Administration has this um, uh, grant, and it, and it funds the CFITrainer.net. We didn't get the grant this time, so. We're going to try it again, but uh, Dan, uh, you you you're a contributor to that too, and um, so your life has been not only burning things but teaching uh, all of us about it. Uh, and uh, and now, it, what are you doing now at UL? So at UL, basically, I'm doing the same thing that I've been doing the past 32 years at NIST, and that is uh, doing fire research and sharing the results. Uh, Underwriters Laboratory has a uh, uh, for-profit side, which is where um, if you look at your extension cord or your electrical appliances and you see a, a UL stamp there, 
Uh, that means that it went through the laboratory, and uh, uh, there's they have 13,000 employees worldwide, and so they're looking to basically prevent fires by working with the manufacturers and ensure that the pro- products are safe uh, by running them through some standardized tests. And then they also check in with the manufacturers to make sure that uh, production process and the way the uh, materials um, come out, they, they will spot check them to make sure that they still meet the standard and they perform. So there's a lot of trust uh, behind and a, and a lot of integrity behind that stamp. Uh, so most recently, people have probably heard about the uh, hoverboard fires, and uh, UL has a, a listing uh, for hoverboards. And uh, and those boards would go through a, a process and and get the logo, and they should uh, uh, be safe to operate. Uh, some of the uh, hoverboards that uh, were imported in the United States and did not go through that process, uh, they have uh, caught fire. And uh, most recently in Harrisburg, Pennsylvania, uh, I believe it was j- just within the past several weeks. Uh, someone, it's been a fatal fire where a child died, and in addition, a firefighter responding to that fire uh, was killed on his way to the uh, to the fire. So, um, you know, it's just a toy on one hand, but uh, on the other hand, it's a potentially lethal device. Uh, right. We're seeing right. similar things with some of the uh, e-cigarettes and other electronics that, uh, quite frankly, just say, five, six years ago, didn't exist. Uh, they weren't around. And, uh, and now lots of people have them in their homes. And uh, UL plays a big role in making sure they're safe. Right. Uh, and my, my side of... Yeah, I was just on the, on the hoverboards, just uh, to underline this for the general audience here. On the hoverboards, uh, their, their, their primary problem was, uh, was the um, battery system. Is that correct? And that was causing those fires. Is that right? That. That's correct. And um, if you want to get uh, an idea of, of the challenges of, uh, say, lithium-ion batteries, uh, so let, well, let me tell you, so, so we talked about the for-profit side and the, and the value that they bring uh, to the world in terms of fire safety. And then UL also has a not-for-profit side, and that's where the uh, UL Firefighter Safety Research Institute is. And with that institute, we work with... Um, other portions of the not-for-profit side, and we have a public safety education and outreach uh, program and uh, that, is, that is with us, and their goal is to get information, uh, public safety information, to school children and to the public, and uh, there's no charge. It's available for free on the website, and one of the most recent things that they've developed is a program called UL Explore Labs. And it's targeted for uh, science, technology, and engineering uh, material for middle-age uh, children, middle-age, middle school, <laughs> uh, middle school children. Uh, I'm the I'm the past middle-age guy. That's why I'm having trouble remembering some of these things. But um, <laughs> but they they do this for the uh, the middle school kids. And uh, their first program was in fact on uh, uh, portable power storage, basically batteries. And so as part of it, it tells how a battery works. It tells some of the challenges of uh, why lithium-ion batteries, uh, in particular, they're extremely good batteries. They, can, can, they store a lot of energy. But if they get punctured or damaged, uh, there's video there from the UL test labs that show the batteries 
bursting in the flame and actually jets of fire or um, or gl- burning globs of material being emitted and, and showering the test lab. So uh, when they go into thermal runaway and start to burn or, or uh, come apart, it's a pretty dynamic, pretty exciting thing to see. And there's videos and, and information on there. So I certainly encourage people to Google uh, UL Explore Labs and, um, you know, to look it up quickly and, and they can take the program for free or just skip around and find the fire videos and look at that if they like. But again, it's all about public information. And the more information that the public has or the fire service has or the fire investigators have, the better decisions they can make, whether it's in purchasing products or whether it's in a, a fire safe behavior. Well, it also helps the fire investigators to know about these things so that they can make the proper determinations. Now, I'm I'm not I'm a little bit beyond uh, I'm I'm a little bit beyond the uh, the middle age parts, but uh, not quite the elderly. I don't. We got to get a new kind of designation in there someplace. But uh, and I'm still working. But you're I know that you're part of uh, this this great uh, initiative here, UL Labs. Uh, explore labs, right? And so they should look it up on the internet, right? And and in fact, uh, we're preparing a new explore labs uh, program, and it is actually going to be focused on having the middle school kids uh, learn about fire investigation. Uh, they're mm. going to have a uh, a training academy that they go through where they will learn some basics of fire behavior and fire dynamics. They will have a fire investigator notebook that they can keep online where they will um, start to collect evidence of a fire scene that they will go through and uh, then see if they can determine the uh, area of origin. And then once they determine the area of origin, they'll see if and in this challenge section whether they can determine the cause. And we hope that that will be released early this summer. Well, I hope so, too, because I'm going to put my guys that are training with my group into that and see if they can figure it out. Um, that will be one of the... Um, one of my criteria now make that uh, if and you're if if, when you're involved in it I know it's going to be great um, we're going to today we're going to talk about some myths that that people believe about fire uh, one of them being a, a lot of people believe that uh, fire uh, can, destroys all the evidence and I, I wanted you to with all your years of experience to I have many years experience from fire investigation know that but I want them to hear you an authority figure here in in fire investigations talk about that for a moment would you well c- certainly uh, fire changes uh, what was originally in place um, materials when they're heated solids when they're heated they can go through a process called pyrolysis where just due to the heat alone the uh, material is broken down and it turns into gaseous fuel because the fuel needs to be in form of a gas to mix with the gaseous oxygen in order to have flaming combustion. And uh, once we have combustion and we're burning the fuel, uh, the fuel is not only emitting a uh, energy as a combustion product, but it's also giving up mass so that it's, uh, if you th- just think about a simple campfire, you start off with a big piece of wood, and then as you burn it, it turns to ash and uh, becomes very light, and most of the mass went up into the uh, combustion products in the form of, say, soot particulate or some of the fuel gases that, uh, that went up as we see the smoke and the plume rise away from the fire. So uh, there's other evidence that is then left behind. 
Uh, in the case of the campfire, you would have the ashes that are an evidence that someone had a campfire there. Um, as you understand fire investigation and, and you can recognize that where a sofa used to be or um, where a chair may have been or, or things of that nature in terms of, of going through the space. You look at the damage on the walls, uh, the fire damage on the walls and the ceiling. Uh, you look at the damage on the outside of the structure to get an idea of where smoke came out or where heat came out. And then you have to look, think about the principles of fire behavior and fire dynamics and say, where was the fire getting its oxygen from? its inlet to the fire, and where was the exhaust from the fire, all the smoke and heat going, and you can determine the flow path and get an idea of what was open at the time of the fire or what was closed. Uh, So you can get some idea about the movement of the fire. What you're trying to do is, starting from the outside and working your way in, track all these uh, this fire damage back until it forms a pattern, a cohesive pattern, looking at all the evidence, and come back to an area of origin. Yes, I, and, I, always, uh, I, I always thought that God was very nice to us when he cr- created physics. We use scientific principles to investigate fires and uh, fire mer- mer- moving up and out in a cone and spreading, as you said, through the through ceiling jets and, and things of that nature. And we follow that uh, what 921 describes as an arrow pattern which uh, they used to call a V pattern a long time ago, and uh, they used and you follow it back to the area of origin, and uh, and so uh, through through your teaching, Dan, you have explained many things to fire investigators so that they can determine the area of origin of fires, and and that's the other thing that while well, you were talking about the campfire, it's the other thing we also use. Um, Science, uh, such as we take samples, you could take samples of that ash and send it off for analysis. Isn't that correct? Absolutely. Um, Some departments or some investigative uh, folks use uh, dogs that have been trained to uh, sense hydrocarbons or sometimes sense explosives. Uh, and they use them to kind of isolate an area. If they have a big area that's kind of all burned and they don't have many patterns, the walls aren't standing anymore, the ceiling's not there anymore, uh, they may have them go through the debris. And if the dog signals, uh, that gives them an idea of, okay, we're going to take a sample here and then send the sample back to the lab to see if there's anything uh that we need to know in that sample. Uh, you can't stand on just uh, the use of the uh, the animal alone, but the animal sometimes can be a, a helper in that regard. Uh, one of the big things to understand, whether it's uh, looking at the chemical aspects of evidence or whether it's looking at the fire dynamics aspects of evidence, is understanding the impact of ventilation on fire patterns is very important. Or inter- inter- understanding that part of the fire dynamics is very important because um, the place where there's the most damage may not have anything to do with the place where the fire actually started. And mm-hmm. so that's something that uh, uh, very experienced and knowledgeable fire investigators understand, um, that, that they may need to look beyond the area where the most damage is to make sure that they have found the correct uh, area of origin. 
Dreyse, and I and I agree with that wholeheartedly. Uh, one of the things that I liked about uh, NIST and and you worked there, and you probably developed it. They have a nice, wonderful exp- explanation of what uh, fire dynamics is, but then they, they also encapsulate it in a very small uh, thing that says fire dynamics is the study of how fires start, spread, and develop. And and I think you must have been part of that because you knew that fire investigators needed something that would be short that they could remember for the stand. Well, I, mean, I can't take credit for that. That is uh, coming out of NFPA 921 and other places. But, I mean, it is interesting to note that um, I guess the, the public and, and maybe some fire investigators sort of take fire dynamics for granted. And the reality is, is um, there were people that were working on combustion, so basically the chemists looking at how fire operated. There were uh, engineers working on how to protect buildings and people from fire, and so they were kind of working on another end of the spectrum. Then you had mechanical engineers in the middle, which were interested in generating power, generating steam, and they're looking at fire and the heat transfer uh, methods. And then we have material scientists that are sort of looking on uh, how things get exposed to heat and how they behave. But that all really didn't come together until like the past 50 years, really. Uh, Howard Emmons at Harvard uh, was one of the leaders with the Home Fire Project, trying to understand how the synergy of how all these processes in fire development would you know, eventually go along and, and lead to potentially a person dying in fire due to toxicity. And then he wanted to develop models. So Vito Bobrowskis, again, was one of the early pioneers in trying to predict fire behavior with a computer-based uh, fire model. And, of course, that work at NIST with Kevin McGratton and others, uh, and, and it's involved the international team now, of folks with a computational fluid dynamics model to understand uh, fire spread and, and fire behavior in a big way. Uh, that model wasn't, uh, its first initial release came out in 2001. The first textbook on fire dynamics wasn't written until 1986. So as a field of st- scientific endeavor, uh, just specifically looking at all this interaction of how fire really behaves and the combustion products that are given off and, and the heat transfer, all that together uh, in terms of fires that happen in people's homes, uh, that's a really relatively new area of science. And uh, so it's been, that's why it's so important to get this information into the training manuals and the educational materials for fire investigators uh, as well as uh, other other upcoming fire scientists, and most importantly, the firefighters that every day are dealing with a fire in in some town and uh, trying to save people and save their property. So we want them to be able to do it in the most effective and efficient way possible. Yes, and and uh, I want to tell you that I was I was always uh, telling our classes, and and IAAI stresses this: if you stop reading, you stop growing, and you die. Uh, you as a fire investigator. So we've got to continue. You're continuing great research, uh, and and we and it. That's all that changed. Um, Nine twenty one was put in uh, to affect it. It it didn't change physics. God didn't change physics because of nine twenty one. But there was a con- now. There's an 
interest. There's a there's an emphasis being made on uh, on on studying and and looking at the research. So so far, we've already blown a bunch of myths that people kind of believe. They believe that that uh, that that fire burns up all the evidence, and you've already told us how it does not. Uh, we found out that uh, that uh, you can sample things and and, and that gives you indicators. We've, we've talked about dogs being used as a, an accelerant detection canines that we've had to show on that. Uh, and you've talked about uh, most uh, importantly um, that we will continue in, through your your uh, lab uh, UL labs um, Explore Labs that will continue to have uh, good fire investigators because you're going to be a part of that. Now, um, what we're also going to talk about late a uh, little bit later whenever uh, we come back. We're going to have to go to a break in a moment, but. When we come back, we just want to talk about uh, some other myths that people in the general public believe, uh, like like a few things like uh, many fires are electrical, are always electrical in origin, and then uh, how uh, people believe that flames, because of TV, they believe that flames will kill you, and that's that people are running around being burned all the time when it's really the smoke. Uh, that kills, and and I know that you can expound upon these things. I'm I'm just trying to to give the the audience a reason to come back and talk to us some more. First of all, you're great, and so they'll come back to listen to you. They don't need to listen to me. Uh, but uh, also, I want to uh, Dan, if you would be so kind, uh, you've done you've also done. Uh, we've only got a minute left, but um you've also done some field work haven't you i mean actually went out and fe- in the field have you not i mean oh. as far as burning things oh absolutely uh it's important to understand that the theories that are developed in the lab uh, mm-hmm. also hold up when you go to acquired structures whether they're single family homes or high rises or large commercial spaces to make sure that uh the understanding of the fire behavior uh holds true when you get out uh out of the lab and into the wind and into the weather as, and uh, into these real structures. Right. So that's so, a, a so, very important piece. So, yeah, so maybe you, when we come back from the break, uh, you could tell us a story of, of, one, of, your, uh, of one of your field uh, uh, experiences that you thought were spe- specifically uh, good for you. Or um, sometimes uh, we talked to Jamie Novak one time about, uh, uh, you know, he does a lot of explosion research. And, uh, <laughs> yes. and he, blew up, he blew up a house and it, it blew up a little bit more than he wanted it to, and it spread uh, it, it spread out and uh, threw debris at them, uh, and they thought they were in a safety zone. That, that was kind of fun. Uh, so anyway, if you would be, uh, if you'd be so kind as to think about a, um, uh, a story uh, for a moment, and then, uh, and then we'll, uh, we'll come back. So c- uh, come back shortly to Speaking of Fire. Become our friend on Facebook. Post your thoughts about our shows and network on our timeline. Visit Facebook.com forward slash Voice America. Fire Consulting International provides consulting and expert fire origin and cause investigations. Our experienced certified fire investigators have specialized skills to meet litigation requirements. 
We also provide peer review of reports for other investigative firms to assure they meet NFPA guidelines and ASTM standards. Educational classes and CEU classes are also provided. For professional investigations, contact Fire Consulting International at fcifire.com or call 913-262-5200. Fireanalysis.net offers cutting-edge, comprehensive programs unique to the insurance industry. Our vendor vetting assures regulatory compliance with the Sarbanes-Oxley Act, NFPA guidelines, and ASTM standards. We ensure that investigators' reports are in compliance with those standards. We also offer comprehensive programs to assure compliance with your company guidelines. Please contact FireAnalysis.net. That's FireAnalysis.net. Have you friended us on Facebook yet? Why not? Just go to Facebook.com forward slash Voice America or search for the keywords Voice America. Once you are part of our Facebook network, you'll receive daily messages about what's happening with our shows, this week's featured guests, and new happenings at the Voice America Talk Radio Network. And you can add your voice to the always active discussions on our timeline. Just go to Facebook.com forward slash Voice America or search for Voice America. are listening to Speaking of Fire with Mike Schlattman and Donna Ingram. To call in to today's show, please call 1-866-472-5788. That's 1-866-472-5788. You may also send an email to connect at speakingoffire.com. Now, back to this week's program. Welcome back to Speaking of Fire. This is Mike Slapman, your host. We're, I'm sorry to say that Donna Ingram isn't with us today. We're uh, talking to Dan Madrakowski, a research engineer for UL and uh, with the Firefighter Safety Research Institute. And he was just teaching us about myths about uh, fire and, and fire investigation we're going to talk about in a moment. And before we went to break, I promised the uh, listeners uh, to stick around and Dan would tell us a story, tell us a story about one of his field experiences. So, Dan, would you pick that up, please? Well, about the field experiences, uh, we had a, uh, a great experience a number of years ago, um, just of south of O'Hare Airport, um, the city of Chicago was growing, and uh, they needed to make O'Hare Airport bigger, so they annexed a part of a uh, town called Bensonville. And this uh, it was several blocks of the town, which had townhouses and single-family homes. And I became aware of it through a contact at ATF, and ATF said that they're going to be running a training class there, uh, for fire investigators, for the local fire investigators, and would, you know, we be interested in coming out and participating. So we had a great opportunity to uh, burn townhouses that were in good shape. We load them with fuel that's similar. We buy fuel uh, by the tractor-trailer load, uh, typically from a uh, hotel surplus company. So we get uh, sofas that are sofas and beds and things that are made by the same manufacturer. They have mm-hmm. a similar build date, so they're, they are pretty much the same product because we want to be able to do scientifically compare one, one townhouse burn to another. And then what we would vi- vary would be the ventilation. So mm-hmm. we would start the fire. Maybe all the doors and windows were closed to begin with, and then at five minutes or 
10 minutes in, we'd open the front door. Then in the next one, we would maybe open the door and a window or uh, start off with the bedroom window partially open. Uh, or we would have the fire service come and do a vent, enter, isolate, and search activity while the fire is burning downstairs and look at the impact of that change of ventilation on the patterns. Then the local fire investigators would come through not having seen the fire itself and see if they could determine where the area of origin was and what the cause was. And needless to say, ATF had put in uh, several distractors uh, in each of the cases, maybe in the form of an appliance or an electric heater or or something else, like <laughs> candles, things like that. Uh, so that was a, uh, a very good experience. Uh, we worked not only with Chicago Fire Department, but many of the local fire departments from Bensonville and uh, Rosemont, uh, Illinois, and it was really, uh, really great experience until one morning. <laughs> and uh, it was about 5 o'clock in the morning, and uh, Steve Kerber uh, wasn't with us in Chicago. He was actually uh, getting ready to give a presentation in Detroit, but uh, he noticed on his pager that a call came in uh, in this Bensonville area where we had been working. It's about 5 in the morning, and he asked me if, uh, so he called me up and says, are you guys testing already? I said, no, we're just getting the crew together, getting ready to go to breakfast and whatnot. He says, well, there's a call of a fire there on Hamilton and Sunset. And I'm like, huh. said, I was burning there yesterday. And uh, what had happened is we had had a rekindle uh-huh. and, uh, overnight. And the folks from the control tower at O'Hare, from their perspective, they thought that the FedEx building was on fire. So that got everyone, uh, O'Hare has several uh, Chicago fire departments on, on property there. And so that got everyone kind of excited there. They woke up from, from their uh, slumber, a you know, relatively slow time at the airport, uh, mm-hmm. not a lot of uh, civilian traffic. And then all of a sudden, wow, you know, something's going on. And then it turned out that it was one of these townhouses across the road and off the airport property that was on fire. And we'd been doing some experiments in it the day before. So... Um, the other yes. fire departments from outside the fence from O'Hare Airport began to uh, arrive on the scene, and what they uh, hadn't realized, there was a plan, uh, but the folks that needed to implement the plan, I guess, were not the first arrivals, and uh, this part of town was basically had been closed for a while before they allow us to come in and, and burn and that kind of thing. So they had a leaking water main, so every night they would shut the water off, and then when we were oh. coming in to do our experiments, they would turn the water on. So the fire departments arrived and didn't have any water, and things kind of just, you know, got worse from there. So I've never been to a fire scene where there were so many uh, angry firefighters about what was going on and, and all that sort of thing. But uh, fortunately, it, it all kind of remedied itself, and uh, and everybody got along, you know, after about a half hour, and, and they allowed us to continue doing our research. And I, I hopefully, I, it, I believe it turned out very valuable for the folks that were able to attend. And uh, we've documented uh, a number of those. We show the videos around the country, and, and people have used them for training uh, from those experiments. So that was, that was sort of one of, my, uh, one of my fires with the fire investigators where, you know, we had something that didn't go quite as planned, and, uh, but the fire service is such a great group of people that uh, after some initial upset about not having any water available and things like that, uh, everything got better. And the damage yeah, was limited to the one structure, and we kept, kept burning for the rest of the week. 
I thought you were going to tell me that, and then they called in fire investigators from all over the place because there were fire <laughs> set in all these different homes, and they were going to investigate. <laughs> I thought you were going to say that, but anyway. But uh, I want to, I want to talk to you, Dan. Thank you for that. But that's a good one. It's, yeah, things don't always go exactly as planned. I know that. Uh, by the way, and I've also found that, and although we burn things all over the place. Fire investigators are pretty lousy arsonists. They have a, a hard time getting uh, uh, research fires going sometimes when they're just trying to get like a, like a trash can burning with, uh, with throwing cigarettes in it and stuff like that. It's, it hardly ever works. Um, I wanted to talk about, remember the old Backdraft movie uh, where um, uh, Backdraft is a real thing. But if you remember, it was, it was, there was a lot of uh, – license taken with that uh, for for, uh, for entertainment value. There was never any smoke hardly in it and all that. But I, w- I want you to to blow away the myth that every time, uh, well, if you remember the opening scene, a guy comes and he opens his door and he's blown out into a to a, a, a vehicle through the front wind, windshield. Um, anyway, the would you explain that with people, if you, there's fire in your house and you don't know it's there and uh, it's not necessarily every time that you open the door, um, yes, you, you should be aware of your, your, your uh, surroundings and look and see if there's smoke coming out and stuff. But will you explain to them that that's not going to happen every time they open the door of their house, please? <laughs> well, I mean, uh, typically uh, what kills uh, Americans in fire is smoke. Uh, it's the toxicity of the gas as coupled with the lack of oxygen in the combustion products uh, that kill people in, in fire. And, um, for example, our, our homes are loaded with uh, synthetic materials uh, such as polyurethane foams. Uh, most people's sofas have contain polyurethane foams. Uh, most people's beds contain polyurethane foams. Padding under the carpet has polyurethane foam and, and many other plastics. It's not just that one. But polyurethane foam, uh, one of the key combustion products that comes out of polyurethane foam is hydrogen cyanide. Um, when anything burns, uh, we also tend to get uh, carbon monoxide uh, out of that. And as you know, carbon monoxide can be... Uh, uh, depending on what other gases are with it or whatnot, but it 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 itself uh, is uh, odorless, and um, so as a result, uh, we have people that uh, may accidentally get a fire started, not realize it, and go to sleep and and you know never wake up. Uh, that's why the importance of having uh, operating and well located uh, smoke alarms mm-hmm. is. Very, very important in a home. Uh, not only having smoke alarms, ideally one in every bedroom, uh, at least one on every level of the home, uh, make sure they're working, but then also have an uh, exit plan uh, with a couple of different options in case you can't get out your front door or your back door uh, due to the fact that the fire is between you and the door. And, of course, the ultimate protection is uh, uh, automatic fire sprinklers so that uh, they're on duty 24 hours a day, and if the heat from the fire activates one of the sprinklers, uh, it'll put the fire out. And as you know, uh, Hollywood, another Hollywood fire myth is uh, sprinklers. That, mm-hmm. uh, and many times in the movies, when one sprinkler activates from a small trash can fire or something like that, the movies show that all the sprinklers activate, 
And that's <laughs> yeah. not true. That's not how the systems work. Uh, most of the systems that are in place for life protection in, in residential and uh, commercial structures, uh, each of the sprinklers, if you look at it carefully, has its own thermal element. It may be in the form of a glass bulb with, say, a red or an orange liquid in it, uh, or it could mm-hmm. be in the form of a, uh, a metallic-looking uh, link. In any case, these are heat-sensitive links, and uh, when the temperature gets to about, when the temperature of the link gets to around, say, between 155 degrees Fahrenheit and, and maybe 160 or 170 degrees Fahrenheit, these links will uh, break and let go, and that basically opens a valve, and water will come out of that individual sprinkler and reduce the uh, damage from the fire and reduce the amount of toxic gas being produced and uh, reduce the hazard, basically, by cutting down the heat release rate. Right, and NFPA has got a big um, has got a, a push on National Fire Protection Association on home sprinklers. Uh, the cost for home sprinklers has come down, even for retrofitting and putting them into your house has gone down. Uh, and they're using a lot of uh, PVC type pipe, etc. So the cost has come down. So people, particularly in new in- new construction. Um, I know there's a pushback from the uh, from the um, construction industry uh, because it increases in the cost and the time uh, for installation. However, uh, with, as a safe, as a life safety measure, there's nothing. Well, uh, smoke detectors, CO2, carbon monoxide detectors, and uh, and sprinklers are are the way to save yourself from dying in a fire. Also, Hollywood's uh, idea of, of uh, everybody running around on fire is not correct. As you pointed out, um, the smoke is what kills and also disorients you uh, relatively quickly, which is why a lot of people don't get out. What I'm concerned about now, the heroes that, that respond to these fires are our are, are, are fire service and police. And we go there and we go there to put out these fires and firefighter cancer rates are increasing tremendously, um, and there's a there's a. I, I think we're going to be talking about deaths in in, in a with John DeHaan and and Ron Sarnacki of the of the Fallen Firefighters Foundation in the future show, um, and that's that's going to be on uh, on 426.17, which is next week after you, Dan, are on. So. Um, what I'm, what I wanted to do is, is kind of ask you what you, what you think, is uh, because you were just talking about this, the, uh, the byproducts of combustion. What do you think is the major, um, or do you, have you done any research? I don't know, but I mean, what do you think is the major thing that's, that's increasing these uh, firefighter cancer rates? So do you think it's well, the byproducts? Well, we we certainly are involved in some uh, ongoing research right now, and we're working with a team of. Uh, individuals from the uh, University of Illinois uh, down in Urbana-Champaign. Uh, also, we're working with folks from uh, NIOSH that are uh, researching uh, various uh, exposures that may result in cancer. Um, folks that are interested in the heart condition uh, and heat stress-related issues um, from Skidmore College, Dr. Denise Smith, and uh, Dr. Gavin Horn from uh, the University of Illinois and Dr. Kenny Fent from NIOSH are, uh, are the folks that we're working with. And uh, they've been doing some elaborate studies. So our focus from UL is we're looking at the fire and the fire dynamics and measuring the fire conditions. 
Uh, but when they have the firefighters show up to participate in these studies, uh, they get uh, brand new gear, and the gear is sampled for any kind of uh, trace contaminant or whatever baseline uh, chemicals may be on the gear. And uh, the firefighters are also sampled. They do skin wipes on them. Uh, the firefighters blow in a uh, tube to see if in their respiratory tract there's any kind of uh, metabolites or contaminants. Uh, they take blood from them. They have them uh, do a urine sample, again, to see what's in their system when they show up to fight the fire. Uh, they have them swallow a pill that gives provides the core temperature. Uh, they put a, a vest, a unit uh, on them that monitors their heart rate and uh, and some other physiological uh, indicators, and then they have them go fight a fire. And uh, we're looking at different tactics in fighting the fire in some cases. Some cases begin fighting the fire from the outside and working the way in. Other times, immediately making an interior attack uh, to see if the amount of heat that the firefighters are exposed to initially, uh, or does it matter if the firefighters are exposed to hot gases or cooler gases with regard to how much contamination they get on them. So those are some of the things that are being sampled for now. Uh, wow. One of the early findings was that um, typically when the firefighters came out and uh, and were cooling off and in rehab, they would again have them blow in the tube uh, to see if there was anything in the respiratory tract. And the good news is the firefighters wearing FCBAs, uh, that protected them, and they did not see uh, a lot of any metabolites when they blew in the tube. The bad news is when they looked at their urine and their blood, uh, they still had contaminants that during the firefight had gotten into their system. So the question is, how did it get in? And it mm -hmm. appears that it, uh, the skin is the path in, uh, perhaps areas around the neck. So I know that uh, manufacturers of firefighter protective clothing are working on new designs for firefighter hoods or uh, areas around the wrist that might be uh, exposed. Um, so they're, they're working on trying to uh, protect those areas because it appears that that may be a path in. Um, Anywhere there's a, a opening, say, between the boot and the pants or the gloves and the jacket, you know, gases could potentially get in pretty easily. Well, I'm sure I'm sure happy to hear that. I was not a I was not aware that you were doing that or they were doing that extensive study. Well, would you tell the general public and and, and uh, just just uh, tell them what NIOSH is and what SCBAs are? Sure, uh, SCBA stands for self-contained breathing apparatus. Uh, folks have probably heard of a, a similar abbreviation for SCUBA, um, which is self-contained underwater for the underwater breathing apparatus. But SCBAs, the self-contained breathing apparatus, are the, is composed of the tank that the firefighters wear on their back, and it also has some monitoring gauges so that they know uh, how full the tank is of air. It's got compressed air in it. And uh, then they have a face piece that fits very well to their face, and it's a positive pressure unit, meaning that the pressure inside the face piece is higher than the outside, so to minimize any chance of uh, toxic gases or what they would refer to as a IDLH environment, um, basically an, an environment that is uh, immediately um, hazardous um, from leaking in. And, right, and uh, let's Ni NIOSH, NIOSH is so and, that people... And NIOSH is the uh, National Institute of Occupational Safety and Health, they're part of the uh, U.S. Uh, Center for Disease Control, the CDC, and uh, they're headquartered in Morgantown, West Virginia. 
Uh, they do re- so they're basically the research arm of OSHA. Mm-hmm. Um, again, Occupational Safety and Health Administration, and um, they also run a program where they investigate firefighter line of duty deaths and make reports, and then look at the data over time to look at what are the root causes of some of the uh, firefighter line of duty deaths on the fire ground or on their way to uh, uh, to a fire or right. uh, heart conditions, things like that. Right. Uh, do you know, um, and I don't know because you work with NIOSH, I don't know if you've heard anything or not. You know, there's going to be some cutbacks. This administration, uh, the Trump administration, is cutting back on OSHA funding and uh, and uh, and things of that nature. Do you know if NIOSH is going to take a hit in that? Uh, Have you heard that? I, I, I don't know, uh, but from the history, which goes back way before this administration, mm-hmm. um, the program for the firefighter investigations was started in the late 90s, and uh, I believe they had about $2 million to work with at that point in time. And, mm-hmm. you know, over the years, uh, that amount of money has been... Uh, uh, chipped away a little bit, I believe, and and so uh, the amount of money that they have been working with is less than what they started with due to inflation and and other issues. And I know that their investigation team is probably as small as it's ever been right now. Yeah, so I, I do know that um, uh, it's a great program, and uh, and certainly it could use some support, as with uh, many of the fire research programs, uh, well, or could use some support. Well, it, the, coming up in in Washington, uh, the first to the third uh, uh, coming up is is the uh, CFSI Con- Congressional Fire Service Institute, and where the the pe- firefighters from all or fire service and uh, private investigations and insurance companies all go to Washington and they t- they lobby there for their uh, for the fire grant. And I'm hoping that people will get in touch with their representatives, both the in Congress and uh, and and the Senate, and and have them support first of all to join the Congressional Fire Service Institute, but also support the fire grant because it helps all fire service people, and uh, and also even funds CFITrainer.net. But before we go off. Uh, before I get too much on my soapbox here, uh, you wanted to. T- I wanted you to talk about a little bit of the fire investigation myths that fire investigators. Um, we talked about this off air, but that fire investigators believe. Would you throw a few of those out? We've got about five minutes. Sure. Uh, well, just let me put in the plug for the uh, FEMA AFG grants as well. Sure. Uh, sure. Without absolutely. them, all this research that we talked about for the cancer and working with NIOSH and, and the University of Illinois and, and UL, none of that would be happening if it weren't for those grants. So those right. grants are extremely important. Um, with regard to myths, um, there were op- there, the fires investigation field, uh, as with many fields, kind of evolves. Uh, where people have certain experiences and they write them down or they, they note them. But given that it's uh, experience in the field as opposed to a, a scientific experiment, they may not fully understand all the conditions. So they, they observe something, they have an observation, but they may not fully understand what caused that observation. So if we go back to, say, the 1940s or the 1950s, most of the furnishings in our homes were made out of uh, cotton or horsehair or some sort of uh, vegetable or natural material, uh, and it did not contain 
plastics or synthetics uh, such as polyesters or polyurethanes or polystyrenes as the furniture does today. Uh, the wood was held together by nails and screws as opposed to some of the wood products and most of the furnishings today being held together by glue. So it, uh, it was a very different environment. And there was a time when investigators would say that, uh, for example, if the seat springs were uh, collapsed in a sofa or maybe in a mattress, that you should look for an uh, accelerant. Mm-hmm. And that turns out, you know, now today we know that, well, that's not necessarily the case. But what collapses seat springs? Well, that means that the seat spring was exposed to something that was at a high enough temperature and transferred enough energy to the seat spring for it basically to lose its strength and, and collapse. So recently we uh, had an opportunity to burn an old sofa because we want to show the comparison between sofas that are made out of cotton and, uh, and natural fibers versus the synthetic sofas to help fire service understand how rapidly the new ones burn and how much energy they have and, and how much toxic smoke they can create very, very quickly. So in the process of doing that, I happen to notice that all the seat springs uh, that came out of the uh, sofa cushions were intact, out of the uh, old cotton sofa cushions Mm. were intact, and they were at full height. So uh, I took one of those springs, and I put it on the modern sofa, if you will, the one made out of the foam plastic, and we burned the modern sofa. So keep in mind the cotton sofa from a, a open flame, a uh, small open flame took about an hour to burn. Uh, so we just had the frame left and most of the cotton and, and the upholstery was gone. The, uh, the modern sofa is gone pretty much in 10 to 15 minutes completely. Most of it's fully involved in fire in less than five minutes, but it takes a, a few more minutes for it to be pretty much just a pile of ashes and a few springs. So we had the coil spring on top of the modern sofa, and after we burned the modern sofa, the, uh, it was flat. So it was kind of interesting, you know, there were no accelerants used, but in a way, because the, uh, the foam plastics have more energy, uh, it was enough to flatten the spring. Now, right. when there were no plastics in the home, maybe the observation that the fire investigator had that something, had, something else had to be here to accelerate this to increase the heat, that might have been correct at some point in time. But as the materials in our homes changed, as the construction of our homes changed, the fire investigators needed to better understand why something happened, not just what happened, uh, so they could uh, uh, get back to the area of origin and the cause. And that's why science is so important to this process. Absolutely it is. And polyurethane phones drip, and, and I know that they've been mistaken for, for um, a, a pattern on a, on a floor, say, of an ignitable liquid. So we have to be really careful, fire investigators, about uh, what they're calling a, uh, an ignitable liquid pattern. Uh, and I know you've done research into that. Now, um, now, Dan, we always run out of time with you because you're so great. Um, and we're we're going to be. Are you going to be at the the ITC in Las Vegas? I will uh, on uh, April 10th. I'll be uh, presenting on uh, the research that we just okay. did at the UL Lab in October and November, which was funded by a grant from NIJ, the National Institute okay. of Justice, well, on the impact there, of ventilation and fire patterns. Okay, when you're there, come see us because we're going to be on TV for from eight to uh, to uh, f- five. 
uh, on uh, voiceamerica.tv. So next week, sorry, we're going to have to go now. Next week, we're going to have Dr. John DeHaan and Ron Sarnet, uh, John DeHaan on fire deaths, deaths and fires, and uh, Ron Sarnacki of the Fallen Firefighters uh, Foundation at firehero.org. Dan, I want to thank you for being here. You've always given us great information. Uh, I want to tell you that uh, next week we're going to have uh, deaths and fires with uh, Dr. John DeHaan and Ron Sarnacki of the uh, Fallen Firefighters Foundation at uh, firehero.org. Uh, uh, Dan, keep up the good work, and thank you for being here. My pleasure. Thank you very much. I enjoy it always. Thank you, and we'll and come to uh, the ITC and see us. We're on on from eight to five, and we're going to be on TV as well as radio on that date on April twelfth. If you're going to be there, and uh, that's all for our our show for this week. Come back next week to Speaking of Fire. Thank you for tuning into Speaking of Fire. Please join your hosts, Mike Schlattman and Donna Ingram, for another edition of our program next Wednesday at 11 a.m. Pacific Time, 2 p.m. Eastern Time on the Voice America Variety Channel. Remember to be careful this week and every week. Thanks again for listening to the preceding program brought to you on the Voice America Variety Channel. For more information about our network and to check out additional show hosts and topics of interest, please visit voiceamericavariety.com. The Voice America Talk Radio Network is the worldwide leader in live Internet talk radio. Visit voiceamerica.com. The views and ideas expressed on the preceding program are strictly those of the host or guests and do not necessarily reflect the views and ideas held by the Voice America Talk Radio Network, its staff, and management. 